pray with me as we begin, as we're going to open God's Word together, but let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the way you correct us and you exhort us, you encourage us, you just show us more fully who you are as we come to your Word. And so we ask this morning, as we open it, that your Spirit would lead and guide us, that you would, uh, that you would lead this time through your Spirit, that you would apply the truth of your Word to our hearts that you would point us more fully to who you are and the ways that you love us. We pray that you would just move freely in this place this morning. I thank you for this time that we have here, that we can come together and that we can open your word in this way, that we have the freedom to do so, that we can clearly and boldly proclaim who you are and what you've done. We pray that you would bless this time, that you'd be honored by it, uh, that we would leave here having seen you more clearly. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I don't really have to tell you this, it doesn't take much to know this, but we live in a, a, a very crazy world. Uh, a, a lot of sadness, uh, a lot of brokenness, a lot of uh, perversity. If you look around at what's going on in our world today, it doesn't take much to see that. Uh, if you're like I am, a lot of times in the morning, uh, I'll, I'll read just the headlines on the news. I'll, I'll open my computer and I'll look at different headlines. In fact, a couple of days ago, Chris and I were talking about this this morning. I opened it up and saw uh, another shooting, this time in a mall. Maybe you saw that. It was in a mall. And, and I'll have to confess, I read that headline and it came into my mind and it left in about 10 seconds. And I kind of went, uh, another shooting. So brazenly just kind of shrug that off like no big deal that someone walked into a store and shot people. And it's, that's the world we live in. It's so in front of us all the time. We see that, that we can, I can, I can look at that and just kind of let it go out the other side. Or I read a story the other day of a woman in Chicago. And the story was that she had committed murder as I started to read the story and read about it, and, and what happens is, is it turns out the one that she murdered was her granddaughter, and that she had been abusing her for years, until finally, in a fit of rage and frustration, she strangled her own granddaughter, eight years old. And I read that the grandmother killed her own granddaughter in a fit of rage. And you read headlines like that, and you can ask the question, and you can think about it, and go, what in the world? How did we get to this point? What does that look like? What is the world that we're living in that you see those things? And you read those headlines, and as awful as those headlines are, oftentimes I read them, and like I said, and I go, doesn't really even surprise me. But yet sometimes we'll say that, and we'll go, well, how did we get to this point, and how did it get so bad, and I can't believe we're to this. But yet then I open the Bible, and I read books like Judges that we're going to start looking at today. And as you read through the book of Judges, you see sin after sin after sin, and you see this cycle. You see this downward spiral in a lot of ways. And you get to, let's say, Judges 19. And if you haven't read Judges 19 before, you can go home and read that today. And it will rival any headline that you see in the news. In fact, in some ways, it's more perverse and worse than the ones that I just told you, just as disturbing. And so then you can go, what's going on? And the answer in Scripture is that at the bottom of that is sinful hearts that have turned away from God. But there is a, a truth in that sometimes we can remember back to maybe 50 years ago. Some of you remember 50 years ago very clearly. And you can go, man, I don't remember seeing stories quite like the ones that we just saw. 
The truth is a lot of them were there and in different places, but in some ways we have kind of gone a downward spiral. What we see throughout history is kind of seasons of renewal and revival, and then we see downward spirals. We see that very clearly in Judges. And I think as we look at that today, as we begin to walk through this book and look at some of these things, what we'll see are a lot of things that kind of lead to these downward spirals, these cycles of sin. It kind of helps us to understand even what's happening in our own world today, in our own country, and how we get to the point where we see those headlines and we kind of shrug them off as, yeah, that doesn't really surprise me. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin this book of Judges. And a good way to think of the book of Judges, if you're not familiar with this book or going back to the Old Testament, what we like to do here is I like to spend time in the New Testament and the Old Testament and kind of go back and forth to where we're always seeing the value of all of God's Word. It is all breathed out by God. It is all good for correcting and reproof and for pointing us to who God is. And so we want to spend time in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But sometimes when we go to Judges, you might go, Judges, I'm not really too familiar with it. It's not usually where you go for your morning devotion. I'm going to open up and read Judges. That's not usually where we go. But when we look at the book of Judges, what we see is really it's a period of about 350 years that Judges take place. And there's cycles of sin. You see the cycle that happens over and over. Things get, people rebel against God. Things get really, really bad. Uh, usually some kind of oppression comes in. They lose out to a, a warring country around them. And then God raises up these judges, these, these leaders, to lead the people back. And there's a great revival and things get better and then they do it again. And they do it over and over. And we see it in these cycles. And so we're going to begin to look at just this idea. And I want you, as we think about the book of Judges, just to kind of place you in the context of this book being written. It was written a long time ago, and sometimes we can go, I don't see the relevance of something written so long ago for us. You know, Judges was really written about uh, this period anyway. The time it's covering starts about 3,300, 3,400 years ago. Long, long time ago. But when you read about what the Bible says is going on in Judges, you read, actually I read this week, uh, sources outside of the Bible that talk about this period of time and what was going on. We have some sources from uh, historical writings outside of the Bible that talks about what was going on in this time. And when we look at those, what we get is this picture of almost like a a post-apocalyptic wasteland, right? There's all these nations at war and all these things are going on and it talks about people going into this area where Judges takes place and they're robbed and they're beaten and they're humiliated and they look for justice and there's nobody to go to. It's the same thing the Bible says. It's, it's, not, uh, it's no wonder to me that the sources outside of the Bible confirm exactly what Scripture says. But what Scripture tells us is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It says that over and over in Judges. The people didn't have a king, and so they did what was right in their own eyes. And you see, even in the sources outside of, that that's what it looks like. And so the background here is a time when everyone basically did whatever they wanted. Everyone was doing exactly what they wanted in all these different ways, and it was a really difficult time. But when we read it, we need to get the big picture before we jump into that. And so I'm going to do this in about two minutes, real, real quickly. This is we're starting a new book today. We need to at least have some context, some context, some background of what we're talking about. And so Chris read to us a minute ago from Joshua. Let me just give you the, the history real quick in the Bible as we go through. Man sins, God promises a Savior. 
in Genesis. Then he renews that, brings that back up with Abraham. And then we see Abraham and then he has children and they start to have children and it starts to grow. And they grow into this nation of Israel and they end up in Egypt. We get that from the story of Joseph and his brothers at the end of Genesis. And they grow into millions of people there. And then they get put into slavery and Moses leads them out as God leads and guides. And then as Moses grows old and he passes the torch to his disciple, his right-hand man, Joshua, and he says, I'm going to give you this land. And so they go into this, this land that we're talking about, this terrible land with all these things going on, the land of Canaan. And as they're going in, there's things happening regularly like child sacrifice. That's the way they worshiped. In this area. And so God says, You're going to go in, Joshua, and you're going to drive out all these other religions. You're going to rid the land of these things. And now I'm going to set up my nation that's going to be a light to the world right in the middle of that. And we're going to teach the world what it looks like to have true worship. And we're going to teach the world who God is through my commands and the way you live. And so you have to get rid of all this. And so Joshua begins to do that. And we read through the book of Joshua and his faithfulness and his leading and his listening to to God and being a faithful leader and they go into the land and they drive people out and we get to the very end of Joshua and he says, now you need to finish this job. Joshua's old now. He's passing the torch. He doesn't have much time left. And that's part of what we read just a minute ago. If you look there in Joshua chapter 24, we're going to be in Joshua 24 for just a second and then Judges 1. But he says to the people, verse 22, he said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. And so you have at the end of Joshua, as he's bringing them into this land and he reminds them of what God says, and he says, you need to finish this job and you need to do it and you need to listen to what I say, listen to God's word, and the people say, yes, we will do that. And so that's the backdrop. They're now coming in and it's a new leadership and a new time and they're coming in to this land. And so as we begin to look at this, I often do, there's an outline in your bulletin if that helps you. I'm going to point you to this outline, and then I'm going to tell you this outline doesn't really apply today. So uh, there's, there's three things there. We're really going to just focus on the first one today. As I got into this and started to look at it, kind of bit off more than I could chew. I mean, there's a lot here, and so we're just going to stop and look at this first one. And what we're going to look at today and what we're going to think about is, is that outline says uh, uh, the, the excuses for disobedience. Right? And then I was going to talk about the consequences of disobedience and then the answers to that. But what we're really going to do is we're just going to look at the excuses today. Next week we'll come back and talk about the consequences and how God's working in that. And so we're not going to throw that out. We'll come back to it, but we're just not going to get through all that today. We're just going to look at the excuses that arise, the excuses for disobedience. And so when we start the book of Judges, it starts well seems like this is a good thing. There's a hope there as Joshua uh, leads the people and he charges the people. Look at what he says right here at the beginning. And so we'll start to look right at the beginning, even the beginning, even in this hopeful part, you already start to see underpinnings of the excuses for disobedience. And so look at what he says right here at the beginning of Judges in chapter one. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel, Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go, 
Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And I'm going to just stop right there for just a second. I say it starts well. There's hopefulness because what the first thing the people do is they're going in and they're going to finish this job that God has put before them. And Joshua, as it says, they inquired of the Lord. They prayed. They stopped and said, let's make sure that we're asking God to lead us on this. And so they stop and they ask the question, God, what are we to do? How are we to do this? What does it look like? They inquire of the Lord. It's a good thing. And so we see God leading them and guiding them as he's promised and he answers them. And he says, yes, you're going to go up and Judah is going to be the one that goes and leads this. And so he gives them this answer. Judah is going to lead you. But then all of a sudden we start to see excuses. We start to see the disobedience coming in. And the first thing I want us to consider, excuses for disobedience. Oftentimes our common sense gets in the way of what God has clearly told us. And what I mean by common sense is our own sinful, broken thinking. Makes perfect sense to us and we'll allow that to overtake what God clearly tells us. Now this may seem like a small thing, but we're going to see in a minute that God says you have not obeyed what I told you to do. But look at what happens in verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise... And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And so right at the beginning, what God says, the people say, God, how are we to do this? He says, Judah's going to go. And I've given the land into Judah's hand, so Judah's going to go. And the very next verse, we see Judah say, hey, Simeon, I need you to come with me. Right? That seems like a small thing, but God doesn't say, I've, I've planned for the tribe of Judah and the pride, tribe of Simeon to go and do this. He says, no, Judah, I've chosen you to go do this. And he immediately, common sense, military sense, I'll get my other tribe over here. This is my brother. We'll do this together. We'll go. And so you immediately see God give a clear direction and common sense goes, no, I think it would work better if I do it this way. Right? And so he recruits help. Now look at verses 18 and 19, what happens. Right? So Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out, of, out the inhabitants of the plains because they had chariots of iron. And so what we have here is this picture that God says, Judah, I'm with you. I want you to lead and you're going to go and you're going to do this. And he goes and he starts to conquer and do the things that God tells him. But then all of a sudden it says he couldn't drive some of them out because they had chariots of iron. And so the picture I want you to see is that as as he goes out and he begins to conquer, even in that same verse, it says God was with him. God had told them that he gives him the victory that he's with him. And then he sees chariots of iron and he goes, this isn't going to work. Common sense tells me we don't have chariots of iron. They do. We're in trouble. God's already said, I've given them into your hand. I want you to do this. Go do this. And then all of a sudden it says he can't do it. And so the picture that's there that comes up is the common sense gets in the way. I see what my eyes can see. And even though God has clearly spoken, I go, I don't know how this is going to work. This happens all throughout the Bible. You see it over and over. Think about when God calls Moses. Right? Burning bush comes to Moses, beginning of Exodus. Moses, you're going to go and you're going to be my spokesman and you're going to go to Pharaoh. And what does Moses say? 
I don't speak so well. I think you made a mistake here. My common sense tells me I am not a good public speaker for you to want me to go and talk to Pharaoh. This is a mistake, God. Right? God clearly says I've chosen you to go and then he filters it through his mind and says, uh-uh, that's not going to work. I can't do that. Right? If you know the response, God says, uh, who made your mouth? I love that. Uh, who made your mouth, Moses? Right? And then he relents and God... God, in his graciousness, allows Aaron to go with him and be the speaker. But you see our common sense filtering God's clear commands. We see it all the way through Scripture. Yet we also see when people see and they hear God and they decide to put their faith in what God tells them versus what they're seeing as common sense, God shows up. We see awesome things happen in Scripture when people go, no, God clearly told me this, and so I'm going to put my faith in what he told me. Great example is in the book of Joshua right before this. Battle of Jericho. One of the famous stories of the Bible. Right? God speaks, tells Joshua, this is how we're going to do this. You're just going to march around the city walls. That's it. Right? If ever there's a time for our common sense, as far as military excursions go, you're just going to march around. You're not even going to do anything. You're just going to march around for seven days, and then at the end you're going to scream real loud. Right? Your common sense would go... I know you're God, but are you sure about this? You know, I often wonder with Joshua, he was faithful and he did it, but if in the back of his mind, if he was going, if this doesn't work, how are we going to do this? Right? I do that. Hedge my bets. Okay, God, I'm doing it. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to work. It happens over and over. We see it in our own lives, if we're honest. Right? I see it very clearly with my children. I tell them something, you can't do this, I'll, I'll give them real clear reasons, and then they go off and they do it anyway. And you go, what? Jed the other day comes in and he says, I want to water the plant, right? The plant Bonnie gave to us for, for Christmas, the little plant, it's growing. Jed wants to, to water it, and he's got this giant cup and the plant's about this big. I'm going to water the plant. I go, Jed, no, no, don't do that. That's not going to work, that's not how we're going to water it. And he kind of goes, okay, okay. And I walk in the other room and I come back and he's got paper towels. Right? And he's cleaning up, and he did it. And I look at him, and I go, Jeb, what happened? I just told you not to do that. And he's like, I just wanted to water the plant. I just wanted to help you. Right? Now, now the, Jed's common sense was, I just want to help. I'm doing something that would be good. Even though he told me no, in his six-year-old brain, this made perfect sense. I'm going to do this. And then there's a big mistake and mess and all that goes with it because of it. That's us so often. God clearly tells us things in Scripture and then our common sense goes, I'm not sure how that's going to work. I think one of the most obvious ways in Scripture, one of those ways we see, is in how we uh, handle our money. God tells us clearly to give to Him out of our first fruits, it says in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul talks about setting aside money at the beginning of the week to give to God's work. And he says, I want you to give sacrificially and I want you to give out of the beginning and I want you to start that way and give that way. And then there's all these promises of how God's going to bless you and how that's going to work and how it's going to be for his glory and how he's going to grow you in that. All those things. By the way, a lot of people like to say that. He's going to bless you and so they make that in. Okay, so give and then God will give you lots and lots of money. That's not always how it works. Sometimes he does bless you financially, but that's not the promise. But he is going to bless you. 
and he's going to make you a blessing. But what happens is we sit down with a checkbook and we go, man, it's going to be tight this month. I've got all these bills. I've got this and I've got this and I've got this and I'm not sure how that's going to work. So you know what, God? I'll wait. And if I've got something left over, I'll give it to you. Or sometimes we just go, uh, uh, we rationalize our common sense. God doesn't need my money. God's sovereign. He's going, right? We'll spiritualize it. God doesn't need to use my money. He's going to do, I used to, I, this is from experience. For a lot of years I used to say that. God is sovereign and he's going to accomplish his works whether I give or I don't. And, and I would like, like I'm propping myself up. Look at how smart I am. I figured this out. But then there's the clear command in Scripture to give and to give sacrificially. And so we let our common sense stand over what God clearly tells us. Right? And so that's the, one of the, the first way I want us to think about the ways we disobey. Right? We, we let our common sense stand over it. Let me just real quickly, before we move to the next one, a very practical plug for when we're talking about being in missional community groups, being in community together. One of the key things for all of us is our common sense always makes perfect sense to us. Always. Right? I can talk myself into anything if I think about it long enough, right? And you hear yourself and it makes perfect sense to me. I had a roommate in college, claimed to be a Christian, wasn't really living it, not sure if he was, not my place. I don't know if he was. His life didn't seem to bear it out. But he had decided that it would be good for him to sleep with as many girls as he could because he needed to find the right one. Common sense, right? Common sense of an 18-year-old who's a freshman in college. This would make a lot of sense for me to do this. God will understand. He had talked himself into it. And you could look right at him and go, man, that's not true. That's not what Scripture says. You need people around you speaking into your life, telling you what's the truth. We need other people. We all have blind spots. It's easy to talk ourselves into things. It makes a lot of sense when we're talking to ourselves. And then somebody else goes, what? That's not what Scripture says. And so there's a real clear application there of why we need each other, but that goes a little further. We'll just stop there. So the first one is our common sense gets in the way. Second, I want you to think about how convenience can trump obedience. What's convenient can sometimes trump obedience. And I think you see this as they go in and they begin to take the land. Look at what it says, right? Verses 27. Actually, we could start anywhere in here because it says this over and over, but I'll start in verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages. Right? And in verse 28, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out. Asher did not drive out. And verse 31, 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. Inhabitants, and we see it over and over and over again. Right? They had taken control of the land, but God had said, I want you to drive out all remnants of this false worship. And now, hear this. This important thing to understand with judges. It is about uh, purity of worship to God. It's not an ethnic cleansing. It's nothing like that. It's I want all false worship out from this because of what I'm about to do with these people to be a light to the world. And so he gives clear direction. But what happens is they've already taken control of the land. They have most of the land in their control. Not really a military threat so much anymore. So much, in fact, that some of them begin to put them to work as slaves, forced labor. 
and they don't follow through. It's more convenient just not to do it all. Hey, we did it 90%. We got it almost all done, and so good enough. And convenience ends up trumping obedience. It's easier to do it this way. We'll just let them be slaves. We can even make money off of them. And so that's what they do. And they begin to, to let convenience take the place of obedience. When I think about this in my own life and in different things that happen, right, I, again, I see it so clearly with my children. Right? At night, my kids go to bed. Eight o'clock is their bedtime. They're in bed. Most of the times, especially during school year, they're so exhausted they're asleep and that's the end of it. But sometimes we sit down, we go downstairs and we sit right under our, our living room. Joanne and I will go downstairs and we'll be right below their room. And I hear little feet running. Right? I hear boom. One of them just jumped off the bump bed and you go here running. And, and I'll call up there and I'll say, get in bed. Right? Get in bed or I'm going to come up there. And then it'll get real quiet. And then three minutes later, boom, and I'll hear a little running. I said, get in bed. Right? I'll yell it again. Get in bed. And then maybe the third time I'll go, okay, I'm coming up there. And then I'll go up there and you have to deal with it and they'll be disciplined. But there's some days, if I'm real honest, I just go, get in bed. Enough. And that's it. And I don't go up there. And and the reason is convenience trumps obedience. Sometimes it's more convenient. I'm just tired. I don't want to go up there again. I don't want to have to go up there and deal with it. And so there's days when I don't follow through. I'm not faithful in what I'm called to be doing because it's just more convenient. It's just easier to yell louder. Right? But that's not really what we're called to be doing. Same in our life in so many ways. Spiritually speaking, God calls us to be living in His Word. Abide in my Word, Jesus says. Right? Abide in me and my Word in you. And so often we hear that and we know that and then we're tired and we don't pick up our Bible. We just leave it. I'd rather watch TV. Or the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Make every petition known to God. Come before Him over and over and over. Keep asking, keep telling Him. Gather together and pray. And so often we just go, "Ah, I'm too tired for that. I don't have time for that. Convenience trumps obedience. Sometimes it's easier not to do it. And so we all do that in different ways. You know, I can read sometimes in Scripture and I read Judges and I go, what were they doing How could they not follow what God told them? But then I look around at my own life and I do the same things over and over. Right? The sinfulness of my heart. I can easily go, ah, I just don't feel like doing that today. And we do that and convenience trumps obedience. But there's one more I want to look at here before we end. You know, sometimes we begin to uh, downplay sin. They like to make it like it's not that big of a deal. I think we put it in different terms. We speak of it in different ways so it sounds better. And I think when you think about what's happening here and what's going on, I kept going back to this. So verse 2, God says to Judah, you shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Right. So God says clearly, Judah, I've given you the victory. I've gone before you. I've got this. Verse 19 tells us, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
And I think as I think about that and as I reflect on that, that is so the way that we operate. A lot of times we say, I can't do this. Have you ever said this? Sometimes we say things like, uh, if this happens, I can't forgive that. Maybe you've used those words. If this happens, that's where I draw the line, and I can't forgive this. Same thing happening here with Judah. Can't drive out this. Well, God's already clearly told them, I've chosen you, I've given you the victory, I am with you, can't do that. And when we do that, when we begin to put things in those terms... I can't forgive this. What we're really saying is not that I can't forgive this, but I won't forgive this. It's not an issue of can't, it's an issue of won't. I think that's the same thing with Judah here. It wasn't an issue that they can't win this battle. It's that they weren't trusting what God had clearly told them. And we do that a lot of times, and we put it in those terms, and we use it as an excuse for our disobedience. God clearly tells us one thing and then we go, oh, I can't do that. I can't forgive that. If that were to happen, I can't forgive that. But yet Scripture clearly tells us that we're supposed to forgive. We're supposed to forgive in the way that Christ forgave us. We're supposed to extend grace in the way that we received grace. And so we're called to forgiveness over and over and over again. And so when you think about that, I want you just to hear this as a very clear principle in Scripture. God doesn't put us in a position where we cannot obey Him. So God doesn't say, you are to forgive, here's the command to forgive, and then you say, I can't do that. You're calling God a liar. God calls you to that. Now, here's the hard part. Right? There's things like uh, Judah here can't beat uh, iron chariots. In his own power, he probably can't. So in one way, you could even say that's partially right. right? You may say, I can't forgive someone. Right? And without the grace of God coming in you and working in you, you may not in your own willpower be able to forgive them. But through God's strength, you can. That's the principle in Scripture as he moves and works in you And so God doesn't put us in a position where we cannot obey him. When we say, I can't forgive that person, in a lot of ways what we're really saying is, I want to hang on to my anger and my bitterness and my frustration. I don't want to give those things up. Just as an aside, if that's you, if you're holding on to that against someone else, when God tells us to forgive... He's telling us because he knows what's best for it. And if you hold on to those things, that in and of itself is a downward spiral that's going to eat you alive. Not forgiving and harboring those things and holding on is going to have way worse of effect on you than it is if you just forgive in the way that God's forgiven you. And it's not easy. I don't say that lightly, but that's a true picture of Scripture. But what we like to do is paint it in terms of, I can't do that. Or we say things like, I can't tell them that, that would destroy them. You ever said that? I can't say that to them, that would be horrible. Now, now there's some times where you say that, and that's probably true, right? If you're just being ugly, or you're being cruel, or you're being whatever, I can't, you shouldn't. But when we put it in terms of a biblical picture, biblically, uh, if your brother or sister in Christ is in a persistent sin, you are to go and tell them. 
You're to call them on it with great love and humility and a spirit of gentleness and seeking to, for restoration, but you are called to call them out. It's not just, oh, I can't do that. That would upset them. The clear teaching of Scripture is that you are supposed to go to them and tell them and seek that uh, reconciliation. You know the verse, we say this all the time, we love this in evangelical churches. Wherever two or more are gathered, then God is there with us. Right? Jesus says that. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there with you. Do you know the context of that passage? It's Matthew chapter 18. And what Jesus has just said is, you're going to go and you're going to confront a sinful brother or sister. And then he says, if they don't listen to you, you go get two or three more and you go and you confront them again. And then he says, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, when you have to do the really hard work of confronting someone, I am there with you. I have got you. That is my plan. That is the way I want you to work. You are to seek for restoration together. Don't skirt that responsibility. And so when we say things like, I can't do that, you are speaking directly against what Jesus says. You can do it, and I will be with you when you do. And so when we say can't, what we really mean is I won't do that. That's the way we excuse ourselves in different areas. We couch it in terms, I can't do that, when we really mean I won't do that. And so all of these ways are ways that we excuse our disobedience. The ways that we we can sidestep our responsibility. My common sense tells me it makes more sense to do this, even though God clearly says this. Or we can begin to convenience can trump obedience. I'll get to that tomorrow. Or we can start to put it in terms that we don't really say what's going on. I can't do that. All of them are excuses for disobedience. And all of them in the book of Judges, as we see these things take root, they lead to a downward spiral of all kinds of mess. And so as we think about that, you know, originally I had uh, the excuses, the consequences, and then the answers. And now we're just excuses and that's it. And so you get all this about how we're disobedient. And I think if if we're listening and we're honest and we're really thinking about it, that at one point, at one of those points, that shines a light kind of into the darkness of our own heart. And I go, yeah, I do that. If you're really asking God to show you and hoping that he would speak to you this morning through his word, there's going to be some areas where you go, yeah, I do that. And I realize this can be a sermon that as we get to the end here and we go, well, here's all the ways that we excuse our disobedience and this is not what Scripture calls us to. It can be kind of a downer. Let's shine a light on our sin. All right. (laughs) Have a good day. You're really sinful. (laughs) Thankfully, though, thankfully, we worship a God that loves us We worship a God that wants what's best for us, that doesn't leave us just in our sins, struggling with these things. We worship a God that loved us so much that he came and he said, I know you make excuses. I know you hide these things. I know you put them in different terms. And so I'm going to come and do what you can't do 
for you and I'm going to lay my life down and then I'm going to restore you to God even though you're sinful. Even though you're broken. Even though you're skirting the issue so often. And I want you to hear this because if you hear those things and you go, yes, that's me. God loves you completely and totally in Jesus Christ and he forgives you. And you don't beat yourself up. You don't wallow in your sinfulness. You repent, you confess, and you turn for it, and you seek to follow Christ more fully this day. That's what the Scriptures tell us. And so be encouraged. Yes, this hits all of us. But when it does, it shines a light on our sinfulness, and it magnifies God's grace. That He loves you so much despite our failures. And the incredible thing is what you see and what we'll see in the book of Judges as we move through it. Is that's the cycle of sin over and over. People ignoring God and forgetting God and making excuses and all these things. And yet, God lovingly brings them back over and over. He restores them and He picks them up and He draws them back and they do it again and you know what? He continues to pursue them. We worship a God that loves us so much that He doesn't just throw up His hands. He continues to pursue and to show us and to point us to Jesus and His grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. I thank You for the truth of Your Word that we can open a book written thousands of years ago. Stories of a different time and civilization and it shines a light on the exact same heart issues that we deal with. I thank you for the picture of your faithfulness, the ways that you love us, the ways that you pursue us. I pray that you would give us this day uh, a desire to root out sin and all of its forms in our hearts, that we wouldn't uh, make light of it, that we wouldn't make excuses, we wouldn't sidestep it, we would take it head on and then turn it over to you knowing that you've forgiven us in Jesus and we thank you for that. Pray the rest of our time here today. It would be a wonderful encouragement as we sing, as we come to your table, as we are reminded, as we celebrate communion, what you've done for us. And despite our sinfulness, you love us completely and totally in Jesus. It is in his name we pray this. Amen.